Hey listeners, it's Andy, and I'm here to see if you've tried Audible yet. With an incredible selection of audiobooks, it is the perfect way to dive deeper into the stories upon which some of your favorite films are based. Audible members get a credit every month to redeem on any audiobook they like, plus access to a huge plus catalog of podcasts, originals, and more. Just imagine listening to the books that inspired movies like The Bourne Identity, Moneyball, or sci-fi classics like Dune. The best part? You can try Audible free for 30 days and get your first audiobook on them. It's a great way to experience storytelling while supporting this podcast. To get started, go to thenextreel.com slash audible or text thenextreel to 500-500. Listen to incredible audiobooks and support the show today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we've got the second of our Hughes Brothers series and quite a departure from Menace to Society last week. This week, their 2001 Jack the Ripper thriller, From Hell. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. Andy, what do you say we just kick it right off with some trailers, shall we? Let's do it. So my trailer, Pete, is is Carrie Pilby, which I hadn't even heard of. I know nothing about it. It hasn't hasn't gotten high reviews on on IMDb uh, <laughs> from its uh, from its. You're really I really know. selling it. Well, it, it opened at uh, Toronto, and it's. Uh, I, I think it's going to have some more festival runs here before uh, before it'll finally get a release. But it it has a really quirky vibe, and it's one of those films that. Even though uh, it may not have the highest of ratings on IMDb, it has kind of that sense of quirky characters and stuff that that could work really well for me. And so it piqued my curiosity. It's the story of this girl, Carrie Pilby, who um, went to uh, Harvard when she was 14 and really doesn't have a good sense of, of, of connecting with the world. You know, she sits around reading books all the time and, and talks to her, her counselor, played by Nathan Lane, and uh, her dad, Gabriel Byrne, and is trying to figure out you know, what to do with life. And, and she's meet, you know, they, they kind of get her to start meeting people and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, it's got that just quirky sense. And, and Belle uh, Powley plays Carrie Pilby, and I'm not very familiar with her, but... Um, there was something about just kind of her vibe and stuff that I, I kind of enjoyed. And I, I, I have to say it, it may not be the greatest of films, but it does have kind of that, uh, that sense of kind of those quirky characters that uh, kind of learn to kind of, uh, you know, find themselves and connect and, and become a better person, all that sort of stuff. Those sorts of stories that, you know, sometimes can really work for me. So, you know, it, it kind of clicked with me in its, in its quirkiness. What did you think of this one? Well, it's it reads to me as the perfect sequel to Diary of a Teenage Girl, uh, which also starred Belle Powley. It almost feels like the spiritual sequel, um, and so I I find her adorable. I think she's just one of those entrancing actors, and um, really funny awkwardness comes through in her performance here that I think is quite charming. Um, I I love that she is paired with. Uh, Gabriel Byrne, I think he's great, and Nathan Lane, you know, is probably not the—it doesn't have the most screen time uh, as the kind of therapeutic anchor to this particular uh, film, but I'm going to really enjoy his uh, non-sort-of-outlandish 
uh, performance. I can tell. I think it's going to be uh, really fun to watch him play a, another good, solid, down-to-earth character because he's he's been outlandish a lot. <laughs> yes, he's he got does. a beard. Yes, he he looks very serious when he has a beard. He does. You know, it's going to be a, a, a sweet little film. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, it'll be something that's uh, worth checking out. It looks like it's going to have a limited release at March, starting March thirty first, and uh, and straight to the internet uh, a week later, April fourth. So there you go. My film is War Machine, Andy. Uh, this is from director uh, David Michaud. It's based on the book by Michael Hastings called The Operators, uh, and Michaud did the adaptation himself. Stars. A crazy cast, Brad Pitt, Tilda Swinton, Lakeith Stanfield, Anthony Michael Hall, Ben Kingsley, Topher Grace, Alan, he keeps calling me, he's going to keep calling me, he'll keep calling me, uh, Ruck, it looks like a. Uh, it's going to be pretty funny, I think, if you find humor in such things. This is the satire of America's War with Afghanistan, uh, and Brad Pitt plays General Stanley McChrystal. Uh, so, you know, it's one of those uh, comedic uh, nonfiction pieces. Brad Pitt has done a couple of these. Uh, I think uh, he, he's got a real knack for playing this kind of goofy character and, and coming after, uh, what was it, just uh, the Allies? Allied? Allied, Allied. Yeah, yeah uh, which definitely another war film that is a little bit more serious. Uh, I, I think this is going to give him a chance to ham it up a little bit in uniform. Um, I, I thought it looked like a very funny trailer. I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, what's the deal with his weird hand in that final clip? I don't know. What would you think? I missed the hand. I was too busy staring at his weird hair. <laughs> yeah, that was weird, too. Yeah. Truth. I, you know, it's uh, it looks like a really interesting film. Um, I hope it's more of um i'm thinking like uh three kings like that sort of vibe and less of the informant or men who stare at goats sort of vibe yeah right right (laughs) uh you know i i burn after reading yeah like right it's it's like burn after reading but in afghanistan yeah right right so i think that there that you can do a lot with satire and i think it can be a really clever way to tell um, stories about something like this. And I hope it works. I think that David Michaud is an incredibly interesting director. Um, you know, uh, Animal Kingdom was just a really compelling film. The Rover was one that I, I really wanted to see. I missed. Um, the, I know that he also did Hesher, which was supposed to be uh, an interesting uh, film that I missed. But um, I, he has a connection with with some dark characters in some of the stories that he's done. And so I think there's something really compelling about that. And bringing that to a story like this that also has that comedy, I think it can be uh, pretty strong. So I'm very curious about this one. I am curious too, Andy. It looks like it's going to hit, you know, internet uh, on May 26th. So it's coming right up, right around the corner uh, on the Netflix. So uh, be on the lookout for that. Yeah, Netflix. God, now we see where all that money has gone. I'm curious if Netflix is going to hit a point where they start releasing films in theaters before they go to Netflix, or are they going to just keep it only streaming? Because I, I, I've got to believe that there's a little bit of a more, like a bigger uh, chunk of change they could probably get uh, doing a theatrical release, but I don't know. I, I kind of. I think that is against their culture. I, I, I don't think that's something that Reed Hastings is going to do. I have a hard time seeing it. You're probably right. I just, uh, you know, at some point, some investors are going to say, hey, you know what? We'd like a little more money out of this. 
That's, that's all right. I'm that's going to be a way for me to save my position here. Reed Hastings won't like it, but it may happen. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Your observations are correct, Andy. It is indeed night. Inspector, I know your reputation for making brilliant guesses that turn out to be right. Someone told me you claim to dream the answers. Sometime this evening, a bangtail was murdered in George Yard. That doesn't sound much out of the ordinary. It was the way she was done, Inspector. It was the way that she was done that cries out for a man of your talent. He can foresee the victims. I saw her. I saw her face. Your vision's about me. Most definitely. You know, they used to burn men like you alive. He could sense the suspects. He must be someone with money. And how do you know that? This ain't killing for profit. This is ritual. But for an inspector in charge of the world's most infamous investigations. He's punishing them. I want double shifts within this area. We'll have mayhem on the streets. I believe this was done by someone with a working knowledge of dissection. An educated man, that's preposterous. The last thing he expected. I want you and your friends off the streets until I can sort this thing out. I do trust you. Was to get close to someone who would be next. Jack the Ripper's not finished. From Hell, Andy, 2001. This one's a horror mystery thriller. Uh, and it is from our friends, the Hughes brothers, Albert and Alan. And uh, it looks like uh, they, they, they took it from the good Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell, uh, the graphic novel of the same name, tells the story of one possible uh, uh, story of Jack the Ripper and the white... <laughs> The white is it the white church? White chapel murders. White chapel all day. I've been <laughs> I've been calling it the White Castle murders, which might be a different thing involving little t- that's, <laughs> that's, tiny hamburgers. That's the the darker uh, conclusion, I guess, to, yeah. uh, <laughs> the to Harold Castle and Kumar's uh, films. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it doesn't tell the uh, the White Castle murders. It is in fact the White Chapel. Murders, uh, and it stars Johnny Depp and Heather Graham and Ian Holm, and uh, Robbie Coltrane and Ian Richardson and oh my goodness, there are a lot of people. Some of them British, and some of them not. <laughs> and uh, Andy, all I can say is I hope you didn't love this movie because you hated it. Because I didn't love this movie. Now you know I didn't hate it. I felt like <laughs> how is it that they could take people who are actually British and make a whole cast that sounds like the the freshman community theater production of Oliver Twist. <laughs> like, I, I, not even a little bit did I buy it. Did I buy the performances? Johnny Depp was, uh, I, I like Johnny Depp. But even these seasoned British dudes, you know, Robbie Coltrane, you know, I love Robbie Coltrane. Where was he? in this movie. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see it. And I found myself enormously frustrated through a lot of it. There was some really good stuff and some genuinely creepy stuff that I felt like it felt not gritty enough for the subject matter. It was, it was a sterile portrayal of, uh, of this really gruesome story. 
And so it was kind of tough for me to to fully invest in. I ended up liking it a lot more than I did when I saw it uh, the first time, which was uh, shortly, or I guess it was when it came out in theaters back in 2001. I um, I thought it was pretty um, okay back then. Um, certainly had problems with um, uh, some of the cast, primarily Heather Graham. Um, and that still is probably my biggest problem with the film. That, that would, I, I can concur. Yeah, but... Um, yeah. But for the most part, um, I, I still enjoyed it. And, you know, I'm a fan of the graphic novel. It's a really compelling read. This uh, this recent revisit actually uh, got me to pull it off the shelf again and start rereading it. I was hoping um, to kind of plow through the whole thing. But, uh, you know, that was kind of – you forget how long it is. Uh, it's definitely a, a beefy tome when you pull that off the shelf and start going I, through You know, again. I haven't – I haven't read any of it. Can you give me a just even a bit of a breakdown of of the how well they did the the actual adaptation of it? Is it is it pretty close? Well, I mean, it would be uh, you'd have to do it as like a, a, a TV series or a mini series or something to really kind of get the whole thing. It's just so incredibly long and detailed, and it has so many characters. I mean, it's it's a it's a big investment of storytelling. I don't think there was a way where they would have successfully been able to have captured it all in one film. I mean, it's like it you know it's the same people who did uh, Watchmen, or at least Alan Moore, right. and uh, you know I mean the director's cut of that was like nine some hours or some some insane amount of time um, that still I don't think it sounded like fully captured that particular graphic novel. This likewise would take a very long telling to really do it the way that um, that they do it in the novel. There's a, It's a really interesting story the way that it's told in the graphic novel because you really, you know, you're watching everything unfold as it's happening. So you know uh, that Dr. Gull is the is Jack the Ripper. You know kind of everything is going on. You're watching all these different people um, going down all these different paths as this whole story unfolds. So it, it, it kind of takes away the surprise, and it's really just kind of this character story and it's kind of this historical story looking at the Jack the Ripper and the society and everything. Um, and there's a lot more with the Masons, and uh, I mean, there's, it's, it's just very uh, in-depth and complex are they, are they, do the characters line up? Like, is it, it's a story of Inspector Aberdeen, Aberlein and yeah, so yeah. it's much more of the chase between the two, and... I mean, again... Uh, even I, though we know everything that happens. Yeah, it, it, there's, it doesn't quite unfold the same. I mean, obviously, the, the writers here took some liberties with the, the story um, to kind of Hollywoodize it a little bit and make it a little bit more the three-act structure and... You have to have the confrontation between uh, Aberlein and Doctor Gull in the third act, uh, and the the you know he's got he gets taken by um, the 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 rotten guy from the Queen, and has to have the big carriage chase and the escape and all that, and the love story and all that sort of stuff. Really, kind of felt a little like they they had to find a way to squeeze it in here to make it feel like a movie, because um, in the film, uh, you know, uh, Aberlein ends up. Um, figuring it all out. And, you know, I, I wish I could remember better exactly how the graphic novel ends, but I know that he ends up living because, I mean, he, Aberlein, um, you know, he doesn't die until the 1920s or something like that. And it, the, the graphic novel actually starts with a prologue with him 
when he's much older and he's talking to an old friend on the beach and they're talking about it and and he kind of acknowledges they go back to his place and he's like this is the house that jack built uh, it's like, this is the, you know, I got all this money from this story and for not ever telling what happened sort of thing. So they kind of like bought his silence. And, um, uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a compelling read. I think it's one of those difficult things to adapt. And I think that the, the, the team here found a pretty effective way to, to condense it and find, some of the thematic elements that the, the that the graphic novel was was going for to uh, kind of make an interesting story, um, you know the the nature. Uh, Raphael Iglesias, one of the writers, talked quite a bit about kind of the sexual hypocrisy that was going on in the era and the way that um, a royal person was treated for sexual misconduct versus a whore from the streets. And just the way that all of the society had so many levels of corruption. So I, I really enjoy all of that in this story. And I enjoy the the kind of the mystery of the whole thing. Um, but it is a really beefy story. And, I, you know, I, I can't help but as I watched it again this time, as much as I enjoyed it, um, despite some of the Hollywood stuff that I didn't like, um, feeling like, gosh, if they really allowed this to be kind of a David Fincher Zodiac sort of, you know, three plus hour telling of the story, could it have been better? So there you go. You know, there are there are two points. As much as I I really love Menace to Society, I wonder if this was a story that was um, that was maybe not in the right hands of the the you know of, of the Hughes brothers it felt like it was trying to be something that that it wasn't and you can kind of feel it in the trailer i mean the trailer uses kind of a hip hop backbeat behind this story of you know jack the ripper uh, in in uh, you know period uh, london and it it just didn't it just didn't fit there were just elements that didn't didn't quite line up and and allow you to sort of invest in the period that that was that was a real shortcoming uh, for me watching the film and it kept me just sort of out of it. But I don't think that's their fault. I mean, that's just the marketing. No, no, no. That's the marketing team saying, hey, let's, let's, we got to find a way to tap into the Hughes brothers audience. And this goes back to what the Hughes brothers said um, after Menace to Society is that they didn't want to get pigeonholed in just making gangster films. They wanted to really kind of try a whole variety of different things. And this goes to that. And I mean, I think um, Ebert actually talked about how this really was kind of a, uh, you know, a, a, a street film. You know, it's a, a film um, of people who were, you know, in the kind of the, the lower echelons of society and kind of um, just their lives and everything. And to that end, you're watching the life. I mean, we really spend most of our time hanging out in Whitechapel with these, uh, with this group of these prostitutes who happen to be kind of tied into this whole mystery. And we really get their world. And and to that end, it really does feel like I can see why the Hughes brothers uh, took this on because it does feel like they know that world from from Watts that we saw in Menace to Society, and now they're just kind of transplanting that uh, kind of the echoes of that type of society in 1880s London, in kind of the slums there. I found that aspect very fitting for what um, their type of storytelling was, even if it didn't necessarily fit with kind of the the hip-hop aspects of what the marketing team was going for. I, I don't want it to come across like I think the Hughes brothers should only have done American hip-hop gangster films. Like, that's absolutely not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there is a particular um, kind of 
experience or sort of cultural resonance to a, a, a film that takes place in this period about this particular story. And uh, I, I'm I'm not sure that they uh, were able to really align with it, at least for my view. And clearly, it worked for you. Uh, it didn't uh, work well for me. And uh, part of it, I could absolutely go back and look at the cinematography, just the way the camera worked, the way it was shot, the way it was lit. Uh, that that I didn't get that sort of grittiness. I did, didn't, you know, I, w- some of the pieces that I liked a lot, which I know you're going to talk about the, uh, uh, you know, the dream sequences, which I thought were very cool. I could have used more of that sort of treatment to the other areas of the film to grit it up, dirty it up, mess it up. And, uh, and of course, the as I've already said, the performances, I think it was not well-directed. It didn't have kind of as, as much of a, a British sensibility to it. It felt like Americans playing British people, even when the people were British. And, and that's something I think I, I had a hard time uh, getting past. It's, you know, it's interesting. And I, I'm, I'm wondering if some of that comes from the Hughes brothers or if it comes from the way that the uh, the writers chose to write it, um, the screenwriters, or if it's just the way that Alan Moore really kind of puts his graphic novels together. Because if you look at kind of the, the graphic novel adaptations that have been made of stuff that he's been involved in, like this, Watchmen, V for Vendetta, uh, A League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, um, it's... I, I haven't read all of those, only this and Watchmen, um, but they're incredibly dense and they're definitely not you know, your typical three-act structure sorts of stories. Uh, and I think that it's a real challenge for filmmakers, um, regardless of their caliber, to uh, adapt and tell their stories in a really effective way that that um, makes for an actual effective film. I don't know if any of those films actually ended up being as effective as they as the graphic novels might have been. Yeah, I I would agree with that, and it's one of the reasons I get so nervous when I hear uh, you know talk of the Killing Joke being directly adapted. You know, it's I know they they released a, a animated version of it last year. Um, but you know, that's, that's another one of those pieces. I think when you look at, you know, this one, which I haven't read, but Lost Girls and, uh, Watchmen, uh, again, they're fantastic in their form. I think Alan Moore really is, you know, he's, he, he may be best served by his native, uh, platform. Um, so, you know, that's a, I think that's a good theory. Roger Ebert in his review, um, which was a, a you know, pretty positive three out of four star review. I mean, he said uh, it's it's a movie, uh, he was quoting Variety, uh, who said that it's catering to no clear demographic. And then he goes on to say, um, it's, you know, despite its gothic look from hell is not in the hammer horror genre. Despite its Sherlockian hero, it's not a Holmes and Watson story. Despite its murders, it's not a slasher film. What I think it is, is a guignol about a cross-section of a thoroughly rotten society corrupted from the top down. I think that, and this is this is kind of one of those things about the film, is like people going into this movie to watch like a, a Jack the Ripper horror movie, they're not going to really get it. People going in kind of like kind of a historical drama, they, they're probably not going to get it. It's really hard to kind of pin this film down. And I think that's why um, I was probably a, a little not thrilled with it when I went and saw it uh, back when it first came out. 
um, and why you might not be liking it now, and why generally it wasn't as as loved, I think. Well, I, you know, I, I don't know about that. I had seen the film before, so I mean, it's not like a second viewing was lost me. It, it wasn't a film that I was, uh, that I was, uh, you know, remembered terribly fondly, but I am generally a fan of these kinds of procedurals, and I it's been so long, I thought, you know, maybe this is one of those that my memory will, will be, you know, better served by seeing it again. Um, you have to love, I think, uh, the characters. You have to love Johnny Depp. You have to love Heather Graham, and uh, I, I think that's a th- that's a real challenge as as sort of the leader of the the prostitutes. Um, that's a a very important and weighty angle in this film. This sort of story of the prostitutes that that is like a boat anchor uh, for for me. I mean, it, just because of again the the way they are directed on on screen and i say that quite specifically because i i actually do like heather graham and we've talked about our um, you know our love of some of her great performances and uh you know in the past i think she can she can do a great job i just I, this wasn't it yeah it made me wonder if the casting directors thought hey you know she she uh, pulled off just a fantastic character in Boogie Nights a few years before this that was kind of one of those people who's kind of on the lower echelons of that particular society, you know, working in the world of the porn industry. Um, and I wonder if that was kind of the transition to this film. Um, but man, she just didn't fit, especially with the other actresses that they cast as the other prostitutes who all looked uh, street worn and weary. And then there's this, you know, this this <laughs> just ravishing beauty, Heather Graham. And just, you know, as an Irish woman, I didn't buy her. As a prostitute, I didn't buy her. As 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 a person living in 1888, I didn't buy her. I never bought her in this film <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. There's that sequence where she is accosted in the alley and she's pushed up against the wall by one of the thugs and the the boss man is shaking her down right and uh it it is a series of very 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 close close-ups uh on their face i mean we're just talking about uh, you know eyes cheeks and chin right and and it goes from him to the thug and then back to her and her face is like porcelain it <laughs> is absolutely pristine and that, I mean, if that isn't a jarring disconnect from the rest of the tone of the film that they're trying to create, I don't know what is. It's it is it's shockingly beautiful, uh, just in in tone and texture, and it looks nothing like the rest of the world that they've tried to set up here. And you know, I get it. It's it's Hollywood. They're like, well, we've got to cast somebody. You know, we're going to have this love affair between her and and Johnny Depp's character. We've got to. Uh, you know, it's got to be somebody who's going to draw a crowd. And, you know, I understand the business side of it, but I just feel like there are times when the business side ends up um, creating just much bigger problems in a project. And this is one of those times. They should have found somebody else to to play it. I just saw Moonlight and Naomi Harris, um, who plays the mother in that film, she is such a ravishing beauty. I mean, there's a reason that she's playing Money Penny in the James Bond films now. Um, but they did such a great job of of bringing her down and just making her look as beautiful as she was, giving her a sense of somebody who has been worn 
out and down from drug abuse, from poverty, and and it worked so incredibly well that I completely bought her as that character in that world, no matter how beautiful she was. You know, she she felt like somebody who had the beauty but lost it because of all the life choices that she had made. Um, if they had done that with Heather Graham and they actually kind of found a way to bring her down to that level, I would have found it easier to buy. But they didn't even try. Yeah, they really <laughs> didn't. It was, yeah, they were capitalizing on on who she is as uh, you know when she's when she's really polished, and that that was not this film. And and I can't. I mean, I. I I was not able to let that go in terms of of the thing that that prevented me from really investing in the film. And uh, you know, to its credit, it maybe it's a better movie uh, than than I was able to see. I just was wasn't able to connect with it. What was the story on the rating? It was uh, it, it it's it's pretty violent. Although uh, maybe I, am I numb to it now? It didn't seem that violent. They they really kind of kept the Jack the Ripper killings um, mostly where you weren't watching them, and I really enjoyed the way that they shot them. You know, just just right. quick flashes of a bloody knife in in light uh, or or slashes or things like that. Very uh, kind of artfully done, uh, and then the bodies obviously were pretty um, um, ravaged. Um, the last, but the, really very quick shots of the yeah, bodies. Though. Really, I mean, yeah, it exactly. Didn't, it didn't linger on on the gr- gruesomeness of it. No, it didn't. Um, I know there were some deleted scenes. I didn't have a chance to watch them to see exactly what was cut out. But I know there was more of one of the. Um, I, I mean, we have the the most bloody. Uh, uh, body that we really spend time with is our last body as he kind of goes uh, as at that point Dr. Gull kind of goes into his delusion and you, you know he's before a whole group of students watching him and uh, you know you see the body laying out there and all that sort of stuff um, but I there was another murder before that who I think that they had shot a lot more stuff with that other murder um, and just a lot more of the gore and everything going on with it and I think that that may be why they were kind of pushing that NC-17 rating and actually had to cut it back a little bit. So I, I'm curious. I, I, I need to watch those deleted scenes, though, to kind of check and see um, exactly what it was. But, uh, you know, the graphic novel is all black and white. So it, it uh, kind of like Psycho avoids a lot of that that blood, despite being gory and, and uh, very graphic. Um, so right. the film, I mean, they really love the color red, whether it's the <laughs> blood red sky or... Or the blood red, um, you know, the the record player, whatever it is, it's just you know the, the most incredible reds, and so um, you definitely get a lot of that when you get the bloody scenes. So who knows exactly what it was, but you know the MPAA can be pretty uh, uh, careful when it comes to um, you know eviscerations and things like that. Yeah, yeah, right. Let's uh, let's do first shot, last shot. Uh, the first shot, after we get a quote from Jack the Ripper uh, in 1888 about uh, being birthing the 20th century, we see an extreme close-up of a match lighting a lantern. Then we kind of dissolve in and out of black as we see some detailed extreme close-ups of uh, things inside an opium den where Aberlene is chasing the dragon. And the last shot, Aberlene's dead. He has OD'd on his uh, precious opium, and we got a close-up of his eyes with coins on them, for the ferryman, uh, it wasn't wasn't there a connection here? the The same shot of the eyes happened after the initial close up, right? In the first shot, we do see that shot of his eyes. Yes, when he's lying on the bed. Yeah, that's the that that's the sort of literal sort of book ended connection for me, right? I mean, there's the there's the the literal connection of it's not quite the first shot, but we get the sense of where he is, and then the close up on his eyes. 
uh, where in the first shot, he's really, you know, he's present, but he's effectively dead. This is kind of his last call. He's already dead, but doesn't have the will to live. It's it's kind of a, a similar character arc to what we talked about several weeks ago now with Logan. Uh, you know, he's already gone, uh, but he has this one last job. And, and that's that's the feeling I get from, uh, you know, from Aberlene's character in this film. The other connection is is the second victim, uh, the second prostitute who gets killed in the street. Um, he actually takes some coins and puts them on her eyes, and we get the same shot with her. So it's an interesting connection to tie that element in with at least one of the victims, in a way kind of making it seem like um, in the end, Aberlene pretty much ends up kind of being a victim of the Jack the Ripper uh, himself in in a different sort of way. Sure, sure, that's interesting. What what was your sense of the um, of the the mechanic of the the coins for the ferryman thing? Did you did that make sense to you? Did it feel like something that he, him uh, that Aberlene as a character would would have brought so closely to him that he'd you know use it as he you know on the job? You know, I don't know. It was an interesting little. Uh, tidbit, uh, just kind of a detail that was brought into it. I was kind of hoping for a little more uh, kind of a symbolism or kind of connection to the rest of the story with it, especially in a story that involves all sorts of mythology with these these masons and and the uh, Cleopatra's needle or whatever that thing is called, and just all these different things. Um, I just kind of got a sense that. Um, there are all these different things that people look at like that. You know, he's he the whole thing coins for the ferryman, putting coins on your eyes, um, is just another way for these people to kind of have all these different connections to uh, various mythos throughout society. Whether it's something that they even really pay attention to anymore or not, it's just there. Yeah, that was my sense too. That that um, you know, this ended up being kind of a hodgepodge of cultural elements, but. Uh, you know, ultimately that one, like you, I wanted a little bit more. I wanted to know why this particular thing was so important to him, uh, and, and we didn't ever really get that. Right. Uh, ca- casting by uh, Joyce Galley and Sally Osoba. Uh, they did land us Johnny Depp, and I gotta say, I as an actor, I like Johnny Depp. I, I even like him in the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean stuff. He's a funny guy. He can do funny guy. This is not funny. This is not funny. I actually like Johnny Depp uh, most of the time, including this, including when he's being a, a Brit. I think he pulls it off really well. Mordecai was was high on your list, right? <laughs> oh, yes. Way that was a there. big one. Did you want to talk about that one? Uh, you bet. That'll be Can our... we do that the same time we do uh, Hudson Hawk? <laughs> and and po- the Postman. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be a really <laughs> wacky days, series. Andy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's funny that um, uh, Alan Moore, uh, his version of, of Frederick Aberlein in the graphic novel was much gruffer, and he complained about uh, Johnny Depp as as Aberlein and his character here, uh, compl- calling him an absinthe swilling dandy, <laughs> which I think <laughs> I think is pretty funny. Um, I mean, I, I can see that. I mean, Johnny Depp kind of can portray that. I mean, he's kind of a, a pirate dandy when he's in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, but he ends up pulling it off well. And I, I think that, um, he, I mean, I can see maybe he's just not as tough. And, and you know, they did a combination of him and a different character in the graphic novel that actually had kind of the, the visions 
Um, so they kind of combined these two characters into into this one. Aberlene in the graphic novel did not have visions. Um, so to that end, it, it made for an interesting character. Um, I, I I really enjoy the visions. I'm not 100% sure it's it's really effective for the story, but I still think he's an interesting character. Yeah, I you know, I made a comment that I, I really liked how they were shot. And that that's kind of the extent of it, because I just don't think I needed the visions for the story. Like I it, it adds it, it sort of lends this supernatural uh, thing to it when really I could just buy it that he's a good um, and very deeply troubled cop. Right. Yeah. He's an he's a, an investigator that has a drug problem. And that's OK. Like that, that may be the end of it because every time some other character comes to him and says, you know, oh, uh, did you dream something again? We, we see you have the visions. <laughs> like there was never any weight to it. It just seemed like it was kind of off the cuff. It didn't really impact his ability to do his job. Uh, and he still was able to figure out that it was Bilbo Baggins. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's the issue that um, that I have with them is is it makes for a, a more interesting visual uh, tool than an effective storytelling tool. Um, you know, there was a there was an element of it that worked better in the graphic novel, but again, you have a huge graphic novel to uh, kind of detail that and and go into more depth with it. So uh, in this but, particular, you know, context, to your point, yeah. I can absolutely see how a a secondary character might have that. Right, have have some sort of an, a, an a be sort of supernaturally affected, yeah, uh, and and make that a, a part of the story. I, I guess I could buy that. Uh, so again, back to the the development of the graphic novel, that that makes more sort of intuitive sense to me. Well, what's what's interesting, and I, I suppose is at least worth kind of uh, discussing, is that I mean, this is a really interesting point in time in England and just in the world of detective work anyway because i mean in the 1880s it's not like they had forensics it's not like they had you know fingerprinting or blood tests or anything like that it's you know it's like if they didn't have somebody who witnessed something they really didn't have any leads and it's like that was kind of it and so it I, to a certain extent it helps the storytelling where you actually have a detective who can kind of uh, play a little more uh, in-depth Sherlock Holmesian sort of um, digging and finding things like the grapes and really kind of know how to how to look. Um, do the again? Do you still really need those those dreams? I don't know, but I, as long as the detective, I think, is still a really effective uh, detective, more so than I suppose the average eighteen eighties. A police officer would be, then I think it could have worked without it. Was there anything that he found as a result of his visions that he couldn't have, you, you couldn't make the case that he would have been able to learn somehow as a result of his just being a good investigator? The grapes totally could have come up with that. The the uh, the surgery, you know, the, the surgical procedures, the things that he discovered on, on the scene, he totally could have come up with all of that stuff. This was at, at a, a point where there were students of anatomy that were studying these things. He could have figured it out. Uh, and, and in fact, I think he did figure it out, arguably, right? I mean, there was there was nothing, I think, that, that came as the result of these visions that couldn't have been uh, simply attributed to being a great inspector. Yeah, I think the only thing, because, yeah, the only thing that I can think of, um, I'd have to look at it again more closely, but I think it's the, when he goes and ends up talking to Dr. Gull um, at that uh, kind of the, the freak show party where they're all looking at the elephant man. Right, right. 
and he's asking him about the knife. Uh, he, I, I think the only way that he ever would have come up with the very specific look of that knife was by having seen it in a vision. I don't think there was really any clue that he would have had from any of the killings that would have said, oh, it looks like this, it's this long, it's got this little serrated area here. Um, I think that might be the only thing I can think of where that's how he came to the clue. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I'd forgotten that one. He that, that came from a vision, but easily written around. Very possible, yeah. All right, Heather Graham. She's our young bang tail. Oh, yes. Oh, she... We got to get all the pinch bricks up off the street, Oliver. <laughs> Oliver, come on, let's sing a song about it. Oh, you think that this would work as a musical? <laughs> Johnny Depp's already effectively done it from the other <laughs> side. Sweeney Todd. Sweetie. <laughs> yeah, we already kind of talked about Heather Graham and uh, why she doesn't work. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I have a lot more to say about her other than the character Mary Kelly is definitely an interesting one, and. The whole idea of her escaping, actually, I mean, the thing that I find so interesting about this film is that so much of it is taken from, you could call it fact, some of it is fact, some of it is reports at the time um, that might be fact, somebody reported it, but, you know, it could be uh, it could be false. There were uh, potentially a lot of false police reports involving this, uh, the, these cases and stuff. But somebody actually had reported that um, uh, something about Mary Kelly having gotten away. And so that kind of led to this whole theory that it wasn't Mary Kelly who was the, the last victim, but it was this uh, potential friend of theirs or something, and that Mary Kelly fled back to Ireland. So even that, I love how that's kind of pulled from a potential uh, option for where Mary Kelly could have ended. Uh, interesting. I, I really enjoy that um, that the writers here, not to mention the people who, uh, like I, I think was, there's Stephen Knight is somebody who had done quite a bit of research on uh, and written some books about the uh, Jack the Ripper killings and everything. But um, um, I, I just love that they they actually imbue this with so much of the histories and of the details of the whole thing. Yeah, I, that yeah, I agree. Uh, and and then there's Robbie Coltrane as Sergeant Peter God- Godley. You don't like him? No, I you know I I'm such a fan of Robbie Coltrane. I I really, I really am. Uh, and and somehow, uh, you know, he just he looked out of place. I I enjoyed him in here. I I don't really have any issues with him other than um, the part felt written. Um, very much as kind of a, a sidekick, and I just didn't feel like there was much for it. You know, I, I would have liked it to be a, a little bit of a beefier character. Yeah, maybe that was maybe that was my problem with it. Same thing as Ian McNeese. I I really like Ian McNeese. I think he's a fantastic actor, and I feel like he was in here as sort of a vaudevillian foil. Um, that that both the doctor and the assistant, uh, every time they are met with a body that has been uh, somehow mutilated. Um, are driven to convulsive vomiting and passing out. I, I think it was, it was it was too much. I it, you know I I, I love you know that. I, that really I was it was great. I mean because you know he, he even says you know I need a real doctor, not just another drunk who can't even you know handle it. I don't know. I I guess in for me like the the. I felt like they captured kind of the 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 stink and the grime and everything of this world and and being in the 
in the the you know fly ridden uh, coroner's lab where they're kind of going through all these bodies. I can only imagine kind of the stink and the awfulness of everything there. You know, it's not a clean, pristine, refrigerated room like it would be today. And so I you know, I bought all of that, and I thought as as darkly funny as it was, I I found it pretty believable. I find that amusing. <laughs> here we because here we are trying to build this gritty, dark kind of um, you know place and. That, you know when the, the, the they go so far as to throw up every time, every time they see this body, uh, it, you know I I get it if they were just a, a you know a, a Joe off the street, but that that the police were unaffected, um, and and they presumably had seen people that had been you know somehow violated physically in these ways before i i just well not to mention know, and it, anyway, i mean to your point i mean ian mcneese as the coroner had seen the first body when they're examining her you know i mean he had already kind of seen her and so it was you know he should have already been kind of used to it to a certain extent and been able to handle it a little better than he did right so i can i can see your point i still enjoyed it but yeah how about uh ian home they were initially going to be casting um uh, who was it? Who they're going to be casting? Nigel Hawthorne, I believe, as as uh, the character. But he ended up um, falling kind of ill. And unfortunately, his uh, his cancer had kind of taken a a bad turn and uh, had to drop out. And so um, so Ian Holm ended up stepping in to play the part. And um, I think he's great as as uh, Doctor Gull. I think that there's something. Um, just I don't know. I always like Ian Holm. He's a he has great presence, and I think that he works really well as uh, as Jack the Ripper. And you know, it's it's a it's an interesting decision and an interesting turn when he's having the confrontation with Aberline, and um, he turns at that last moment, and his pupils have gone completely black. It, like once he's once he the persona of Aberline has kind of taken him. <laughs> It's a little, it's a little corny. I definitely agree, um, but I, but I liked it. I don't know. I, I, t- I took it kind of as a, you know, a way almost like how Lord of the Rings did, where it's like the uh, the darkness had kind of fallen on him, and so I, you know, I kind of enjoyed it. But the funny thing is about that particular character is William Gull. One of the reasons that this uh, this theory that had had come around, I can't remember in the seventies. I think this whole theory came that that Gull, um, may, if he didn't know who Jack the Ripper was, he was Jack the Ripper. One of those things. Uh, one of the reasons that so many people have really kind of dismissed this whole theory is that because by the time this all happened in eighteen eighty eight, he would have been seventy two years old, and he already had fallen ill. Um, from I think he had been hit by uh, typhoid um, like 15 years before and so was very ill and and uh, n- would never have been able to be running around committing all these murders um, especially as as uh, effectively as he was so um, and that's kind of an odd little thing in the film because you see you know uh, uh, Ian Holm kind of hobbling around a little bit and then uh, when he becomes Jack the Ripper and his eyes go all dark and stuff, he just seems totally fit, fit as a fiddle. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Strong enough to lift, you know, to lift women off their feet, right? I mean, that we we see him do it, uh, and and it's it 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 doesn't doesn't play. Uh, well, he has Jason Fleming to help him out. 
Okay. okay. <laughs> Jason Fleming is Netley the coachman. He's fine. You know, you, I may go as far as to say he he was my favorite thing in the film because there's this there's this bit at the end where he says, you know, I, you say there are three more murders that you got to do, like three more of these women you need me to do. I, I don't know if I can do it anymore. And that felt like Jason Fleming, not Netley. <laughs> it <just laughs> felt like he was done. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll do it, but I'm going to be phoning it in. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> there are a number of, of victims uh, in this thing. Uh, obviously, many of the prostitutes are stabbed down in the streets. Uh, but there is one in particular you want to make mention? Yeah, I mean, I think that all the actresses uh, do great um, as the prostitutes, um, except for Heather Graham. I think they're all cast really well. Um, even their friend uh, Annie, who who gets kidnapped. I, I really enjoy all of the women. Uh, but Susan Lynch, who who plays Liz Stride, um, kind of the, uh, the lesbian prostitute, um, she's just an actress that I've always found really compelling in... in stuff that she does. And I haven't seen her in a ton of stuff, but the film that she's always stuck out in my head um, as the the role is she's the Selkie in uh, the fantastic film, The Secret of Rowan Inish. Um, and uh, I don't know what it was, just I, I think just her presence as this, this uh, woman who becomes the seal, just, I don't know, it always kind of um, struck a chord with me. And so that's like how I will per- per- perpetually uh, remember Susan Lynch, but um, yeah, I, she's great there, and I actually really enjoyed her character in this film too. Let's talk about getting it made a little bit. Uh, the uh, starting with cinematography, this is Peter Deming. Now, I, I said you were going to talk a little bit about the dream sequences, and and you probably should do it before the memory of it breaks your brain. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I I want to try to make sense of this. I don't know if I fully understand exactly what they were doing, but it was all like a, a, an actual process. It wasn't digitally done after the fact. Um, what it sounds like they did is they shot them using a reversal film stock, um, which normally um, you you process it twice and it comes out, um, it, it's not like a negative, it comes out like a, a positive. My understanding of what they did is they cross-processed it, which means they only processed it halfway and it, it kind of gets through the negative stage, but it still gives you kind of a positive Im- image, but somehow it ends up being really contrasty. The green and the yellow, it, it kind of really emphasizes those colors and and makes for a look that I found really interesting and compelling. And nowadays is probably super easy to create in the digital labs, but, but yeah, right. I, I love that this was something that they actually did in camera and in the developing of it. Um, just it made for a really fascinating look for the dream sequences. He is, uh, well, he's obviously been around a long time since the early 80s. He's been uh, working as DP. He did, you know, the Evil Dead 2 uh, was one of his very early uh, early pieces. He's done uh, some, some of the Scream movies. He's uh, Joe's Apartment. That was a, that was a bananas, bananas movie. Did you ever see that one? With uh, It was a John Payson film with Jerry O'Connell and, and the, the cockroaches. cockroaches. I, I only saw the trailer, but I know the film. Bananas. He's behind that. He also worked with David Lynch, and in fact, he's DP on the first 18 episodes of the Twin Peaks revival coming in, I guess, May, I think. Uh, we've talked about him on the show. I'm not sure if it's more than once. We did talk about him during uh, our, our film board episode on Oz the Great and Powerful. And now you see me too. Oh, yes. Now you see me too, uh, where we had unmixed feelings about the film Oz the Great and Powerful in particular. 
but I think the cinematography we we actually quite liked. Yeah, so. I mean, that was a beautiful film. It was just a terrible yeah. film. <laughs> yeah, uh. beautiful and terrible. Uh, <laughs> the um, uh, this one, uh, you know, I. Maybe this is why I had a challenge with this film is that I felt like it just wasn't wasn't gritty enough. As much work as they put into the dream sequences, I wish they maybe would have put a little bit more thought into the actual tone of the uh, the visual tone of the streets. You know, when we're walking down the street and everybody that you see is uh, either they're they're either um, peeing in the street corner or having sex in an alley. Uh, there, there is a certain visual style that I, I kind of want, and I didn't connect those. There, there was cognitive dissonance, visual dissonance um, between those things, and I, I feel like that was a that was a challenge to to my eye. That's interesting because I actually liked the way that they shot all of that. I felt it actually um, helped emphasize kind of the griminess and the grittiness of all of it. So it worked really well for me to that uh, to that end. But it didn't give you that sense of, and, and you know, another piece just in terms of, of blocking, it felt like there were always so many people uh, on screen. It didn't give you this sense of uh, of kind of uh, loneliness in the visual um, approach to the film. Like, I always felt like I was walking through a back lot, uh, just kind of a clean but not very well lit back lot. And that, it, it just looked kind of fake. I didn't get that. I mean, you already brought up Zodiac, and I feel like the visual style of Zodiac actually aligns very, very well with the tone of the film. And this is a film where that doesn't work as well for me. That's all. It's just so funny that you say that, because I, I don't know. I felt it looked great. I love the production design, the costume design, the the just the, the locations that they chose uh, over in uh, Prague, I believe, was where they filmed all of this. I mean, they, they talk about how, you know, they had all these horses in the carts and everything, and they were just crapping all over the streets, and they didn't wash any of it out. The, the streets were just covered in just horse manure and they just kind of kept it that way to kind of give it the gritty feel um and as stinky as it was and yeah i don't know i felt it was all there on screen and i really enjoyed that just the complete look of all of that not to mention the uh the stunning shots of the the like the the beautiful um you know vistas that we'd have of the city with the blood red sunsets or or really creative shots of getting the camera i mean i think one of my favorite shots was the as as um dr gull is is coming out of his house for his last round of killing and he's coming down his stairs and then the the uh, his carriage um steps come kind of drop down right in front of our like right over our head as he climbs up into the carriage um i i found there was just a lot of really interesting um and creative camera work paired with um for me i thought a really effectively built world but i guess i, I do want i guess I, you didn't i, I do want those stairs way. no i you know i didn't feel that way i i do uh, i i do want those stairs like everywhere i go i want the chunk 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 the satisfying chunk of stairs to to come down before me if i if i have if i ever have a, a house or an office that needs stairs they're going to be controlled by that big metal machine that's fantastic. That would be awesome. Well, so there you go. Production design, Martin Childs, hair and makeup, uh, Jerry Farkas, and costumes, Kim Barrett. Um, uh, for you, it worked. The costumes and, and makeup, with the exception of Heather Graham, I think worked very well. Anybody else you want to talk, uh, before we jump to uh, Trevor Jones? Uh, no, just Trevor Jones. Trevor Jones did the music. I like Trevor Jones. He's done some great stuff. Uh, Dark City. And actually, we didn't even mention um, uh, Ian Richardson as uh, Sir Charles Warren, the... Uh, uh, 
the police, uh, I don't know, lieutenant um, above yeah. Aberlene. I loved him in this film. Um, and I just thought of him with Trevor Jones because Trevor Jones did the music for Dark City and uh, and uh, good old Ian Richardson is, uh, is in that fantastic film. Yeah, he's Mr. Book, right? He's one of those fantastic actors. I mean, he had been in the original House of Cards and, and he was in Brazil. And yeah. uh, I, I mean, just really... A compelling actor, but Trevor Jones's music had a fantastic gothic feel to it, and I think it worked well for this world. I really enjoyed all of it. The only thing I didn't enjoy was the Marilyn Manson song during the during the end credits, but the rest of it, I I really enjoyed the music. Yeah, I did too. The only thing that my only comment about the music that I found frustrating, there were a number of sequences that were like two shots or two sequences where two characters are talking back and forth across a desk or an operating theater where there was no music at all. And it felt like the the way they were speaking to one another, they were all wait lines, right? They were all like, uh, we're going to need some emotional build, but there was no music. And so you'd have this, like Johnny Depp would deliver this line that you that sort of demands kind of an emotional, bassy undertone of environmental music, and and there was nothing, and it felt a little bit comical. So the sequences between him and Ian Holm, uh, I think the first two meetings, I think it's either the first one or the first two, there is no music at all, and I found it really lonely. Like, I, I wanted to sing along <laughs> to help them. And did you? Well, maybe in my head a little bit, I did. It's interesting. You know, the Hughes brothers, this was their third feature film that wasn't a documentary. They did the, they did Menace to Society, uh, Dead Presidents, and then uh, after their documentary, American Pimp, they ended up making this film. Um, I think to a certain extent, they were still very young filmmakers. And I think, you know, they were still, I mean, we talked about their influences, especially Scorsese last time. I think they were still pulling from a lot of their influences and still really, to a large extent, trying to find exactly who they were as filmmakers. And so I think some of those conversations about, should we put music here or, or is this fine without it? Um, maybe because they were still like, you know, I don't know. And and I think that's an interesting um, glimpse into um, this pair of, of filmmakers. And also, I think, you know, we talked about how these guys had really kind of struggled with, uh, well, I don't know if we actually talked about it much, but they struggled with Hollywood. And, and I know we talked about kind of their PR and how they, they kind of had to get schooled a little bit on their, on how to kind of handle the press and not be so, um, hateful toward, you know, saying some nasty things about people in Hollywood and stuff. But I think they really ended up having kind of a hard time with the type of storytelling Hollywood was wanting them to tell. And so um, uh, it's going to be curious. Uh, it'll be interesting to see kind of how their career evolves from uh, this point forward. Um, and after Book of Eli, just kind of seeing where the two of them end up going from here. Now, I know at this point you have a list of all of the Jack the Ripper movies uh, to review in terms of sequels and remakes. I'd like you to do them all. <laughs> Every single one Every of them. Jack the Ripper movie. You know, it's funny. I don't actually have many of them, but um, there was a, a book, I believe, called The Ripper File that um, was kind of um, made into a film, Murder by Decree, directed by Bob Clark, who we've talked about uh, with Black Christmas. Um, this is the story of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson uh, as they try to kind of solve the Jack the Ripper killings, which is uh, always kind of interesting. But uh, it's it, again, it's influenced by Stephen Knight's book, Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution. That's the book that really kind of had this whole Masonic uh, plot and all the stuff with the royals and everything brought in. Um, so that's, that's one of the movies that, uh, 
that was um, drawn from Jack the Ripper. I'm sure there are more. I didn't really actually do any research on the rest of them. <laughs> the only one to really watch is Time After Time. Is that the only one to watch? And, aren't, what, and they're and they're doing a new remake of that, a new TV series from. That. I think so. They are. Yeah, I haven't heard with much like, about it. With like a, a it's like a, a sexy Sherlock Holmes and a sexy uh, Jack the Ripper, and he's trying to stop him as he's killing in modern New York. Yeah, right. It's the only story left to tell is to make it a sexy Sherlock Holmes. It's the only Sherlock Holmes story uh, left is sex it up. Right. It's like Fifty uh, Shades of Grey. It... <laughs> <laughs> That's right. How to do it at award season. Well, this wasn't exactly uh, an Oscar film. It, most of the awards that it did get uh, nominated for were kind of just the genre awards. Like it got three Saturn Award nominations uh, for Best Horror Film, Best Actor, Best Costumes. It was nominated for Best uh, Screenplay at the Bram Stoker Awards. Uh, the International Horror Guild nominated it for Best Movie. Um, it, you know, it's that sort of movie. And then, you know, the Hughes Brothers um, with the Black Reel Awards, they got nominated for Best uh, Director for Theatrical and Best Film. But uh, both in both cases, the movie ended up losing to Training Day. But, um, uh, you know, yeah, it's I mean, it's it's an interesting film that just uh, I don't know if it uh, was one that really captured its audiences. That's OK. They got Denzel later. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. How to do in the box office? Well, you know, Albert Nallen had a much bigger budget to play with for this film than their last several. This was $35 million for the budget, or 47.6 in today's dollars. The movie was released October 19th, 2001, opposite The Last Castle and Riding in Cars with Boys, where it opened at number one that weekend. Um, but the movie didn't have a strong buzz and did have a bit of a challenge as a gory film shortly after September the 11th, unfortunately did find itself falling pretty quickly from number one to number three and then to number seven and finally out of the weekly top 10 by its fourth week of release. Domestically, the film made $31.6 million, or 40, about $43 million adjusted. Overseas, it did better, earning almost $43 million, or $58.4 million adjusted. So it did make its money back with an adjusted gross of about $101.4 million and adjusted profit per finished minute of $441,000. I'd say it's a pretty solid place to be for this comic book adaptation. When did Johnny Depp uh, start losing his uh, the shininess of the Johnny Depp draw? Because this one, I mean, you see that, you know, it opens at number one. It opens at number one because of Johnny Depp, right? <laughs> Arguably. Uh, yeah, I think so. You know, it's a horribly violent movie about Jack the Ripper. It's, it's not going to open with any with just anybody. I think he was still in a place where he wasn't like a complete box office draw. He was still kind of, you know, Hollywood still considered him kind of a, you know, dark actor. Like he makes a lot of uh, choices for projects that are, you know, something he wants to do. It's not necessarily going to be something that um, that is a big hit. I mean, he had uh, Sleepy Hollow and The Astronaut's Wife in 1999, but he also had Fear the ninth, and Loathing in Las Vegas. Well, he had The Ninth Gate in 1999. Um, yeah. Not a big uh, hit for Roman Polanski. Um, in 2000, he had The Man Who Cried, which was, I think, kind of a, a bomb. He was had a bit part in Before Night Falls. He had a, you know, Chocolat, the Oscar nominee, yeah, was in that's that. right. Um, but then the next year, he does Blow, kind of the, the story about uh, the the guy who started the drug 
drug empire. Um, same year he did this movie. Um, and it wasn't until 2003 that he really, I mean, that's when Pirates of the Caribbean hit. And that kind of turned him into something huge again, where it really, he, I think he really started taking off there. So I think he was at a place, he was very popular, but I don't think he was complete box office draw until after this. I'm just, I, I was wondering, because at the time when they would have been, I don't know, maybe thinking about this, watching things uh, uh, that he had done, wouldn't they have been looking at things like Donnie Brasco, which I thought he was great in Donnie Brasco. Yeah, I don't know if he's a moneymaker, though. Nick of Time, I don't think was a moneymaker. Ed Wood, Ed, what's, what's eating Gilbert Grape? A, a random thing that I learned about uh, Johnny Depp and his movies is that, remember the movie The Tourist that he did? Uh, yeah. That was such a huge, uh, you know, uh, uh, a, a kind of a domestic flop. It ended up making a ton of money. And I didn't, I never realized that because it was received so poorly. But yes, that movie is one of his most commercially successful films, uh, <laughs> grossing $278 million worldwide. <laughs> wow. Yeah. What about uh, what about old Don Juan DeMarco? Remember him in that in that when Faye Dunaway oh, got her groove back? I love that movie. It's a great movie. <laughs> right? Yes. Remember his chest? Man, he was that poster is it doesn't really tell the story of the work. <laughs> Looking at it right now, it's it's full romance novel, which I guess is fine, but I thought he was great in that movie. That was such a funny character. It is. That's, that was a, a very nice little small film. I enjoy that quite a bit. It was. It was. Anyway, so these are all things that make the case for Johnny Depp being somebody that people are interested in seeing. And so I still think that there is something to that. Shall we flick chart it? Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. And uh, you can just slide over to your in your uh, show notes there on your podcast app of choice. And you can tap on the flick chart, the word flick chart. It will take you right to this film in your flick chart account. And, uh, and you can add it to your list. And let's see how it ranks once we, uh, once we dig in here. We have From Hell or Joe versus the Volcano. Joe versus the Volcano. Joe versus the Volcano. Absolutely. That's a no contest. <laughs> All right. From Hell or The Host. Little Bong Joon-ho. From Hell for me. I, I think I'm I think I'm the host. I think that's predictably the host. I'm I really liked that movie. It's kinda easy to beat the host for me, but this one doesn't quite do it. Let's let's go to the mat. Okay. One, one two, two, three, three scissors. Rock. All right. There you go. All right, next up we have From Hell or our last uh, 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 listener's choice, the emigrants. Oh, from hell. From hell. I, I'm close actually to saying the emigrants here, but I'm gonna say from hell. Uh just I am not I am not close. <laughs> from hell or the untouchables? The untouchables. Yeah, I had some story problems with the untouchables, but I would still pick that one. From hell or defending your life? From hell for me. Aww. Aww. <laughs> Meryl Streep, she's such a she's such Go a ahead, she's listening. Overrated actress. she went back for the cat andy (laughs) i'll give you from hell Alrighty, from hell or the magnificent seven 2016 version i'm saying from hell okay from hell from hell or metropolis i'm gonna guess you're gonna say metropolis i am yeah i think i am too 
Yeah, I, I'm kind of either way on this one, but Metropolis, I think uh, there's just a lot yeah. of compelling stuff there. Uh, from Hell or The Little Foxes? I'm definitely from Hell. Definitely from Hell. <laughs> uh, okay, well, that puts it at uh, 242 on our flick chart. 242 out of 294. See, that that feels okay for me. I imagine you're feeling just a little bit stung. No, you know, I'm not. I, I As much as I enjoy the film, the problems that I have are are big ones. But I still really enjoy the film. But I'm okay with the spot that it landed at on the chart. Well done, Andy. So there you go. Yeah, no, I like it. How's this? Uh, what is this for your letterbox? Uh, three with a half star of Andy Love? Three and a half? Believe it or not, it's four stars. <laughs> what? Four I know. stars? I really liked the film this time. Like, I, I found it so compelling and so fascinating. I was really surprised that I enjoyed it as much as I did. If only it wasn't for Heather Graham and and the parts with her, I would might have even gone higher. But uh, yeah, four stars wow. straight up for me. Well, I was I was coming in right at two and a half. I feel like I'm I need to restrain you, but probably not that much. I'm gonna give it three stars, just just so we can I can I can sort of meter your exuberance just a just a hair. And it's probably a good thing. It's probably a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there we go. This is this was number two in our Hughes Brothers. We've already teased it. We are doing uh, uh, Book of Eli next week. Yes, we are. Very uh, much looking forward what do you, to seeing when's that. When's the last again. time you've seen that? In the theater. Last time I saw it was when it was in the theater. So I, okay. yeah, I'm looking forward to checking this one out again. I remember enjoying it quite a bit. Um, I'm not loving it, but enjoying it quite a bit. And so now I'm curious to kind of revisit it. I, I remember really enjoying my experience with Book of Eli. I thought it was a really, uh, I thought it was a really great movie. And I, I have a hard time remembering anything beyond Denzel. Yeah. Like I, it'd be tough for me to tell you what it really was about. Yeah, I got some I, nuggets. I have a vague idea, but I, I'm kind of in the same place. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. That is next week. Uh, until then, I, I gotta go to bed. All right. Well, I'm gonna go uh, down to the opium den and chase the dragon. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. <laughs> Melissa saw this film on January 4th, 2014, and I think she was in the same high school theater that I was. <laughs> she says, <laughs> she says, super jank. I don't know what that means, Andy. Is that a millennial thing? <laughs> <It> must be. <laughs> we're, we're in the wrong uh, in the wrong business. She says, super jank. Johnny Depp is cute, and so is Heather Graham. But it's hard to even know what they're talking about the whole time. <laughs> that's a one star. I agree. Oh, that's funny. Well, I've got a one star by Marilyn A. Campbell, who says, if only Jack could have ripped this up. <laughs> uh, this film takes the easy way out and uses the theory of government conspiracy covering up royal guilt. That aside, Heather Graham's must have missed her makeup call, what with her pearly white teeth and barely dirtied hair and clothes. Johnny Depp is incomprehensible as he mumbles along and occasionally attempts an accent. Several good character actors are underused. It's a boring mess. (laughs) (laughs) These are are good. The, The real victim here is Alan Moore's wonderful comic book. 
which has been savaged, <laughs> rape, butchered, and emasculated out in the streets. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, you know, that's one thing we didn't actually talk about, that, that Moore actually had his name yanked from it. Uh, and and I'm not sure I know the, the backstory enough on that, but he's, you know, we talk about it as the as the um, uh, source material here, but it's not anywhere on the poster. Not like in, on, you know, Watchmen, his name was on it. Oh, right? interesting. I, I didn't, uh, I don't think I knew that. Clearly, I don't know enough about it. Thanks, Amazon. 